This is Terms of Reference. Today's guest is Claire Hajaj, an independent political analyst and writer who over the course of her career has helped produce recommendations for G20 responses to the Arab Spring, developed the UN's first integrated strategy for Iraq, and advised the UN on a five-year plan for development and peace consolidation in Kosovo. She has also worked as a journalist and a public affairs consultant. Late last year, she spoke with Terms of Reference host Stephen Loddick. Claire, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. We are speaking with you where? Where are you sitting right now? I'm sitting in my, uh, <laughs> in, it's, it's sort of a cross between a house and a farm in uh, uptown Pristina, the, the edge of the city where the, the buildings just kind of gave up and, uh, and the mountains took over. Fantastic. Well, tell us about, you know, how that you became an uh, international development or humanitarian aid worker. How, how did that genesis happen? I think it was what's technically known as the long and winding road. Mm. Um, and, and, you know, people do call every now and again because it's, it's seen to be a, an up-and-coming field development. So every now and again I get phone calls from, from parents of, uh, of friends, you know, kids I knew when they were like five or six and now suddenly they're at university and, and were wanting to go into development. And they all say, how and how did you do it? And uh, as if there was some a formula that you could plug into a computer and, and – out the other end comes development professionals and mm-hmm. and perhaps there is i've certainly not found it and i i fell into it um but it was it i guess in a in a sense a little bit like um a, a ship that's traveling for a, a a long long distance and there's always a you know you're always your your needle is always to the north you kind of know where you're going um mm-hmm. but tides and and all kinds of other things can take you in quite a circuitous route so I'd always wanted to, to work in some way in some form of peace building because my parents are, are um, from two warring cultures uh, who Which warring have, cultures are those? They're my, my mother is a, a Jew um, and my father is a Palestinian, mm. Muslim, um, and those two cultures, as you may know, don't, don't get along so well these days. Mm. We're not always so, but uh, they, they struggle. Um, and to find common ground on any number of issues. So growing up, and I grew up in uh, in a country that was not itself in a war, but in between two countries having quite a vicious war that uh, that spilled over into our environment. So I grew up in Kuwait during the time of the Iran-Iraq war. Um, and so, and watching the build-up to the Intifada on television. And so war and, and that was always... Uh, a part of my life and the sense of, you know, watching people be displaced, watching families um, break down, seeing the tensions it brought into lives and the spillover effect. I, I always wanted to to do something um, to contribute in some way to ending that. So when I, when I for the very first time, walked into the UN, um, went to that building on 42nd and 1st. When was that? That was in 2001. It was literally just... Um, Oh, it was just 2002, actually. It was just post-September 11th. Mm. So September 11th was just a few months behind. Um, you really did get a sense that New York was still reeling, and, of course, the, the international scene would never be the same again. When I walked into that building for the very first time, um, fresh off the plane from London, um, fresh out of the entertainment industry, I had this extraordinary sense, and I think everybody should have that sense once in a lifetime, of, of having realized a childhood dream, like a real childhood dream, mm. you know, something that you can't even formulate when you're little. 
but and walking into that building I thought wow I looked around and I saw everybody speaking different languages and all these faces and, and shapes and sizes from all different parts of the world and and I knew I didn't know then um but it, it didn't matter how challenging it was and how flawed the UN system is and and how um far the ideals are from from reality but even so even now when I think that it still was an extraordinary moment and it still remains for me I guess one of the proudest moments of my life mm. how, can you can you tell me how you know how did you get on that airplane like what made you leave the entertainment industry was it a moment was it you know you just you just sort of it was, it was time it was- of moments. I mean, all through working in the music industry is not as far from working in the UN as you might think. I mean, certainly there are grandiose personalities and uh, huge amounts of um, different competing interests at and you're, stake. And you're, you're talking um, about the UN now? Both. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like the Security Council used to say, wow, this must be so different from where you used to work. And I used to think, hmm, not as much as you might like to think. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's a very good training ground, but um, but at the same time, it's a, it's a career with, I think, a fairly short shelf life if you have, a, um, unless you are, you know, they're obviously, I wouldn't want to denigrate, there are people who spend their careers in the music industry and the entertainment industry, and, and God bless them, they do very well, they do great jobs, you know, there are brilliant professionals there just as anywhere else, but it's also... Um, an industry where you you do run the risk of of doing the job at sort of forty that you would have wanted to be doing at twenty one to impress your friends mm. and and after a while i knew I knew that it was not f- for me long term i had i 'd always had a different goal. The entertainment industry is something i 'd ended up in because i I happened to be good at it and I happened to be in a group of people at the time and um, who persuaded me very much to to stay inside it um, but at, by by the time I was nearing thirty. I felt very strongly that here's I need now to re reset my course if I can continue this ship metaphor to reset my course and I didn't quite know how because there is nowhere uh, a how do you get into the UN handbook and I do remember actually when I was 20 and just out of university I sent I must have sent 50 letters um, just showing you my my incredible nows at twenty. Fifty letters addressed to whom it may concern. Mm. Dear sir, I would like to join. Insert institution name here. Please tell me how to go about it. And I sent these off to every UN agency, um, and you can imagine how many replied. Mm-hmm. That would be none. Sure. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> none replied. And I thought, okay, uh, well, that, that's where my ideas hit a wall. Maybe that's but, a maybe that's a great great space to discuss how did you finally get a reply when you were you know you're now 30 you're you're in london you're you've decided to make this career change what was you know how did you finally chisel a hole in um i it was it was uh, a serendipi- serendipitous piece of luck actually at the end of the day um there there was um a friend of my brother's was leaving her secretarial job in the Security Council, and the, it just so happened that just that time they were looking to replace her, and it had to be a very specific combination of skills. Someone who was willing to work for not very much money and with quite a degrading job title. I mean, again, no disrespect to secretaries at all, but it was um, it was not at the time I was a director of a company, so to kind of go from company director to secretary seemed to me quite a, a leap down. So they had to find somebody who was prepared to, to do those two things, but at the same time, someone who was had strong skills in, in writing and diplomacy and other things. So they were, and it just so happened that, um, I, at that time had kind of really burnt out at my job. 
I heard about this opportunity um, and I did a telephone interview with, with two very interesting sounding people whose names I think I couldn't even pronounce at the time. Um, and they said, yes, well, you know, come to New York and join us as a secretary. So I, I looked around at my life and I thought, this is going to be a really huge change. It's a real leap into the unknown. Um, and the job was at the Security Council. It was a very odd-sounding job, probably my most impressive business card ever without actually having an impressive job at all. It was the uh, information coordinator for the Counterterrorism Committee of the Security Council. That's awesome. So, <laughs> I felt like James Bond wheeling that around at dinner yeah. parties. But so I, off I went to New York to um, to live in a you know cockroach-infested tiny apartment in, in Bleecker Street with two other girls, um, and paying you know virtually my entire salary and getting getting money out of the ATM at twenty dollar a time and making twenty dollars last three days. I mean it was that that kind of thing because you didn't earn very much money and. Um, but as I said, when I walked into the building at, at, for the first time and, and completely. A complete novice, complete ingenue. I had no idea what the UN did. I had no idea um, the scale of it. I had no idea what I would be doing. Mm -hmm. um, and I was just felt so awed um, by the experience. And and that was the start for me of a, of a ten year long career. Um, it, I started as a secretary. I was told that that was all that I would ever get to be because in the UN there are rules about who can enter and who can't. And if you enter as a secretary, usually you will stay a secretary. Mm. But I was lucky enough to see, to meet somebody who um, saw that I had skills prior to the UN. And that is something that actually I do say to people who are interested in joining is that the UN is a world unto itself. There are, it has accountants, it has human resources officers, it has security guards, it has publicists. Um, and if you're just hoping to kind of get in there with your, your degree in international affairs, well, there are, millions of 22 year olds with degrees in international affairs they've got to have a lot of backing to get in mm -hmm. but if you come as a 30 something with you know a fantastic public relations background or you know a producer background or after a career in the army or i don't know i mean you've got something to offer um that is beyond just your enthusiasm and your excellent knowledge of international relations so i was lucky enough to meet somebody who who's saw that I had a good, strong backing uh, background in, in uh, PR and media and advocacy and poached me to do a really interesting job at UNICEF. And, uh, and that was where the adventure really began, I would say. Fantastic. And, and now you're in Kosovo. Now I'm in Kosovo, yeah, after diversions via a whole bunch of places from Pakistan to Burma to, goodness me, Nigeria. Oh, it's also a very interesting place to work. <laughs> Indonesia, uh, Jordan, Iraq, uh, and now here. Tell us, um, tell us, um, tell us something about. You know, do you have a favorite story from one of those postings, or do you have? You know, a, a, is there a thread that ties those postings together about you know working for the UN that you you could relate? Um. Oh, there are there are <laughs> so many. So many adventures, um, if you like. And my, my UN experience, I think, was, was in some ways quite unique for two reasons. Um, one is that all of the field work that I did uh, in those early days took place in the post-September 11th, post-invasion of Iraq, post-bombing of Afghanistan environment. Mm -hmm. So I was out in, in 2003, and I remember being at the Security Council during the debate to try and get this uh, invasion of Iraq resolution through um, and when Colin Powell came to, to sort of shake his little vial of anthrax 
at everybody and say, you know, this is what's going to come if, if we don't invade. And I remember the real sort of palpable sense of, of impending doom, of fear and of genuine deep sorrow um, that pervaded the UN at that time. And it made me realize that for all we hear about the UN, it's full of human beings who really don't want wars to happen and have a very real sense of the, the people who are alive now who would be dead if they failed to stop the invasion. There was a, a, a real sense of grief and sadness that, uh, that I will I'll never forget. All of the fieldwork I did came after the invasion. It dramatically altered uh, the landscape for any humanitarian actor. Um, so, you know, I, I remember being out in, in the wilds of northern Nigeria where, where there's no internet and there's no you know, radio, there's nothing, there's no electricity. Um, the only radio stations they, they have is what I used to call Radio Imam. You know, mm. The mosque is the only source of information. And, and people would be screaming in, in genuine fury at me, a stranger in their midst, saying, you know, you're bombing our brothers in Iraq, you're bombing our brothers in Afghanistan, you're bombing our brothers in Palestine, and you expect us to believe that you're coming here to bring us free vaccines? You must think we're stupid. And that, it, it, it turns suspicion into enmity. Um, so one of the things that, um, that I try to do in all the places that I, that I was, was try and find a way to connect with these people who essentially have nothing and no reason to trust us, mm-hmm. um, on a, on a human level and trying to find the ingenuity that the private sector brings, um, which can get lost very easily in the development field. I mean, I'll give an example. One of my, uh, one of my favorite stories is, uh, I was working in Burma and Burma is a really, really authoritarian government. Mm-hmm. Um, and a government or, or that was, who knows, or, you know, was, I've not been back. So I reserve judgment on how things have changed. But in those days you couldn't travel in the country, um, without asking permission from the ministry of defense. So for everybody mm-hmm. who wanted to travel, the ministry of defense needed to grant permission and, Within four to five weeks, they might do so. And should they be so kind as to let you travel, um, they would then give you a series of minders and your itinerary would be very carefully planned. Now, I was there to help them run a mass immunization campaign. Mm. My job was to try and get people in the community and local officials really buying into the campaign so that they would show up on the day um, because everybody had to be reached. It was kids from, at that time, kids from nine months to 15 years. Everybody had to be immunized over the course of three, four days. And in a, in a society where government officials like to believe that people just do what they're told, it's very hard for them to accept that, you know, maybe people won't show. Mm-hmm. If they're frightened, if they're worried, if they're um, too far, if they're too poor. So um, to get a real sense of, of how people felt about this, I needed to speak to community members. But speaking to community members was not something that one did in Burma. You, you could speak to people under very careful supervision. And as I was driving through these uh, remote areas with my minders, I asked a couple of times to stop at villages and talk to people, and I was always told no. So, you know, we went to the health centers, and we met very carefully turned out doctors and nurses who showed us, you know, beautiful digital photographs of fantastic immunization campaigns. And that was kind of it. We were turning to go home. And I was trying to think, how on earth am I going to get to talk to anybody? And the only thing that could occur to me was uh, to develop an acute attack of diarrhea. (laughs) So I came down with a very upset stomach. And several times en route, I needed to stop for an urgent bathroom trip. Now, you know, you can tell anybody a number of things, but you cannot tell a woman that she cannot go to the toilet. 
<laughs> That's brilliant. But the thing was that they knew, and I knew they knew, and they knew I knew they knew. Everybody knew, but what could they say? They couldn't mm-hmm. say a thing. So, you know, I stopped in villages and rushed into houses and, and, and squatted in the garden, and, uh, whatever. And then I got a chance to uh, have a quick hurried chat with a family and check some children's arms for BCG and and find out, you know, what was going on, and then on to the next village, and suddenly I needed to go to the toilet again. Mm-hmm. And uh, and this went on for a few hours until finally my upset stomach had run its course, and <laughs> everybody in the car was kind of fuming slightly. <laughs> and uh, it, it just was, it was just a kind of a, a wonderful feeling. And they, they were smiling because they knew I'd got one over them, but I'd, I'd done it in such a way that, that they couldn't possibly get in trouble. Sure. Which is always one of the most difficult pieces in that it's a, it's yeah. the system prevents, you know. Uh, exactly. It's not the people who want to prevent, but it's the system that prevents. Exactly. And, and the only thing that I had lost was a little bit of dignity. <laughs> no. So, uh, yeah, it was, it was one of those, it was just kind of a nice memory that I'll, I, I t- I'll take away of how, you know, there's kind of always a way. Mm-hmm. And when you're, when you're not caught up in the bureaucracy, um, then, then people will always help you find a way. And I had so many similar experiences um, throughout my, my time, but that one somehow always sticks in the mind. I love it. That's a fantastic story. One thing I wanted to touch on was um, the fact that you're now a mother. You worked for UNICEF for a long time as obviously you know, a, a single and a married woman, but with, you know, without a child, but now you have a child. How, mm-hmm. has that, how has that changed your perspective about your work? Yeah, well, it's uh, um, at, at the risk of, of repetition. I, I, I had not come into this business um, because of either a profound desire to save the world. There were parts of the world I sometimes felt did not deserve saving, um, uh, nor out of a, a deep, deep love of children. Um, I came into the business because I, I wanted to be part of the history of the world as it moved along. I wanted to feel knuckle deep in events that, that other people were reading about. I wanted to really understand what moved the world and how it worked. So, you know, whatever that says about me, I don't know, maybe not very good things, but, um, but then I was in an environment where it was kind of heresy to say that you, 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 you have to, you know, you have to love kids. but <laughs> didn't necessarily love them at that time. I was a very, you know, selfish and quite self-absorbed 20 something. And then in my early thirties, it was more about the challenge and, and the game and the, and, and being able to get the job done and, and do it under very challenging conditions. Uh, but, so, you know, people would say, you must love kids, and I'd be like, oh, I really do, I really love kids, and I'd always feel slightly slightly guilty on the edge. And there were times, absolutely, where, where I would be deeply, deeply moved by the power of children to change a community, and it would come at me you know, completely out of the blue, like being in, in the north in Nigeria and... and where there's again, you know, they have no food, they have no water, they have no electricity. They do have Sharia. I hope that keeps them warm at night. Um, and seeing in this one one house with this one woman who's got any number of kids, and they were, you know, squatting over the pit immediately outside the house, you know, free defecation, and people were dying left, right, and centre. And in all of this mess, uh, there was one little girl, and she was in a, in a place that was almost like a shrine. She was sitting there with her legs folded and a school bag beside her, and she was writing something in her notebook. And I asked the mother, what's happening here? And she said, this is the one child they could send to school. And 
they were so proud that this one kid was going to school that they had cleaned up the area around Terranid. They had this place where this child was sitting and doing her schoolwork was the cleanest, nicest, most looked after place in the whole village. Mm-hmm. And I, I was just so moved by seeing that, how that hope brought by that little girl could, could bring that kind of change and infect the whole community. Um, but generally speaking, I, you know, I didn't really understand what it was like to, to be furious um, at what's happening to kids until I have my own. Mm. And, then, and then it's the old cliche that suddenly every child I, I looked at and every, every violation I saw, I could imagine how that child was feeling and I could imagine how their parents must feel. And in a visceral way that I've never been able to understand before. And I'm actually not sure that it makes me better at my job, to tell you the truth. Um, there's probably a lot of bias that comes in now. Yeah, there's, there's, there's an, emotional, an emotional twist that comes in now that wasn't before. And it's something I actually think has to manage. Um, it makes me maybe more passionate, but less effective, I'm not sure. It's, I don't see it as a strength. Um, I see it as an enormous vulnerability. Mm. Last question. Mm-hmm. You touched on this earlier when you were first talking about um, there is no path into humanitarian aid. There is no path into sort of the development world. What type of advice other than, you know, find someone, you know, uh, I guess what type of advice would you give to someone who is interested in this world, uh, interested in this career path, um, you know, as their most important tool? What would you tell them to do to, to get their foot in the door? Skill up in another area. That is basically what I would tell them. I think, I think that, you know, it is the old sort of that JFK thing of ask not what you, your country could do for you, but what you could do for your country. And I think the same really applies to development. Like d- development is like love, a word much used and little understood. It's, um, we don't really know what it is. We're still arguing about what it is. Um, we're still arguing about what constitutes doing it well. Um, what value do you think you have to add coming straight out of college maybe? to that incredibly challenging discussion. Um, your energy and your enthusiasm, great, but what else? Is there something else you can add? If there is, develop it and then come into development because it's, it's much easier to me and much more rewarding to come to development with a background in some very practical transferable skill. Um, I also think, and I may be wrong, that it's it's worth contributing to your own community um, and your own country or, or, or your own where you happen to be, um, if you can, before taking those skills elsewhere, because well, you you learn a lot. Um, if I, I mean, I I was still naive and and impressionable at 29. Maybe I was just you know a late developer, but God, I mean, if I was like that at 29, at 21, I I shudder to think. <laughs> how how little i knew and i'm only kind of just really beginning to understand the the gulf between uh genuine profound and deep knowledge and and where i currently am at approaching 40 so i just think people really need to to build up their skills and their knowledge in a field and then bring those skills and knowledge to an area that that has so much to do with how the world's poorest people experience their lives. You know, we have a responsibility to be as sharp as we can before we try and bring our skills into that mix. Do that make sense? That was brilliant. 
Thank you so much for your time today. You're very welcome. You've been listening to Terms of Reference, a weekly podcast from Aidpreneur.com. Find us at iTunes and at www.aidpreneur.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time.